Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I've got coronavirus on the brain these days. I, I want to know more. I want to know what to do. I want to know what's going on. I was really glad to sit down with Josh Michaud. He is an expert on global public health issues with the Kaiser Family Foundation. Uh, we were able to talk about, you know, some of the science, the public policy, uh, a lot of the the, the the nitty-gritty, the details on coronavirus. I learned a lot here. I, I still have questions because it turns out that a lot of science is, is known unknowns here. Uh, but I think, you know, it'll make you feel maybe a little bit more alarmed, maybe a little bit calmer, but at any rate, better informed. Uh, check it out. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, my guest today, Josh Michaud, is the Associate Director of Global Health Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Um, he is knowledgeable about, about many things, global and health-related, uh, but specifically, we wanted to talk today about coronavirus and the COVID-19 disease that that it causes because, um, I don't know, it's it's on a lot of our minds this week. Uh, so thank you so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So I, I wanted to start not quite in the at the beginning of the story, but sort of in the in the middle. In in January, I, I remember I was on vacation. I was aware that there was a big infectious disease outbreak problem mm-hmm. in China. Yeah. And I and I knew it was a big deal. I mean, I wasn't like downplaying it, but it was a problem that was in China. Right. And the United States was doing some stuff, uh, restrictions on travel of foreign nationals who'd been there to try to stop it from coming here. And then I guess it worked for a while. There, there was a period of time. It, it went on for, for a while to the extent that I started kind of tuning out these like Chinese coronavirus stories. Um, and then it stopped working. And what like what what happened there? Yeah, well, what you're seeing, uh, I think, around the world and with the U.S. case as well is that uh, countries are trying to catch up to where the virus is. And, and we saw this initially from the start with the Chinese cases because they didn't realize something serious was happening until it had already become a major epidemic. Uh, and then what you saw was uh, people from that original epidemic starting to seed epidemics elsewhere. Uh, and uh, the travel restrictions that were put in place, at least at the U.S., were a little bit behind the ball, actually. There's people had already arrived by the time those were in, uh, in place. And then as the epidemic expanded, you had additional people coming from additional locations that weren't covered by these bans, seeding uh, likely transmission chains in the U.S. and elsewhere. So that means we're just behind the ball at all times, or it seems, uh, with this with this epidemic. And there's a time delay. So you had this massive epidemic in China, which garnered rightfully a lot of attention. But it's because that had been smoldering there for, for a while. And, uh, you know, the worry is and the concern is that these seeding events in other uh, countries means that it's just a matter of time before we see widespread transmission wherever there are transmission chains now. It takes a while to build up 
so, you know, it, it's not something that happens all at once. Mm -hmm. it, it takes a while to build up. You have that sort of exponential growth over time, and you start off with a few cases, and then all of a sudden you've got, you know, dozens to hundreds of cases. And we've seen that uh, story, re you know, repeat itself over multiple countries now. And, and part of the problem here, I mean, it's good that in many cases the illness is mild, right? right. That's that's better yeah. than if everybody was seriously sick. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it's like unlike in a disaster movie where everybody is is dying. And one consequence of that is that it's hard to actually know who's sick, right? Because it's not, it's not like super unusual for a person to have a cough or a fever. No, absolutely not. And uh what you see at first in any epidemic like this, some something new, is that you will you will see the most severe cases first, and those were the ones that were caught in China. Uh, people who had serious pneumonia, people who had respiratory failure, people who were dying from this uh, disease, and then you start to realize that's just the tip of the iceberg. That there's a lot of other people out there who have a milder version of this uh, illness, and then it's difficult especially when you're in a situation when you have an overwhelming number of serious cases, to find out the extent of uh, the rest of that iceberg. And the rest of the world has learned from that experience that China's gone through, realizing that, yes, we have this virus which causes mostly, you know, 80% uh, of cases are of that mild to moderate variety. And we need to be looking for those. But up until now, and especially in the United States, we haven't been looking for those. We've had such a restricted protocol for how we screen for this and look for cases uh, here in the United States that uh, we're coming now to realize that we've missed quite a number of cases uh, because of that. Right. And so something that, you know, I, I kept seeing here, I, I mean, I know a, a lot of people are just not great with statistics. It mm -hmm. seems to go against human kind of intuitions in a lot of ways. And I felt like I saw you know, the, the president on television several times expressing that, where he would be saying, well, this is like the flu. And I actually, I get what he means, right. which is that the typical COVID-19 case and the typical flu case are pretty similar. Like if you look at the the median expected outcome, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you get sick, but not that sick. Right. You don't die. Yeah. You stay home for a couple of days mm -hmm. and you feel better. So that is the same. Right. But then there is a difference in the distribution of the outcomes that makes this a much more serious kind of problem. That's right. So symptom-wise, there's a lot of overlap, sure. And in fact, when we're surveilling for this and you don't have a test, you're looking for influenza-like illness. That's the term. Right. So, uh, you know, we're talking fever, uh, cough, uh, and perhaps some, you know, some lung issues. And that's a good starting point for thinking about this. And it's true, like you said, that the, uh, the presentation in, in influenza is also mostly mild. But where this new virus uh, separates itself from uh, influenza is that this is brand new and that nobody uh, in the human race has uh, pre-existing immunity to this virus, which is different from influenza. And we don't know how that will play out over time. So, you know, we have seasonal influenza, which circulates every year and uh, 
causes quite a bit of illness and uh, a large number of deaths, in fact, in the United States this past uh, season. We're thinking maybe 15,000, 16,000 deaths caused by this particularly severe uh, influenza season. So it's hard to uh, compare when we're just learning about this new virus and it's only just starting out on its trajectory. It may eventually become a circulating respiratory illness, just like influenza is, just like we have a number of other coronaviruses which cause human disease, which circulate and cause the common cold. So um, as you point out, one of the major concerns is that this might be more serious or more deadly or cause more severe illness than seasonal flu. I think we're still learning more about that, mm -hmm. but the early indications are that there is reason to worry that this is some multiple level higher uh, in terms of serious hospitalizations and deaths than your regular seasonal flu. And that's true, even though most people have mild symptoms. I mean, it's like, yes. it's like you get in your car and you just go drive with no seatbelt. Mm -hmm. You'll probably be fine. Yes, yes. It's like still not a good idea. <laughs> it can both be a serious problem and not like for the typical person, that kind of risk. You know, one thing you you speak to there is just the the novelty, right? That when it comes to infectious diseases, new is bad. There are a lot of instances in human history when previously isolated populations get exposed to a new disease and it's it's much worse right. than sort of Previously, right, and that's that's essentially what we what we see here that a that a that a virus that nobody gets now we have, and that that can be alarming even if there's nothing like inherently terrible about it. Right. Yes, uh, and we see this again and again. In fact, even with within influenza, we have pandemic strains of influenza which emerge, uh, to which humans don't have immunity or very little immunity. And the same situation plays out where it rapidly spreads uh, across the world because there is no existing immunity. And, you know, we last saw this in 2009 with the H1N1 pandemic, which emerged from North America. Uh, and within, you know, just months, it had spread across the world. Same thing we're talking about here. The immune system is set up in such a way that you're, you have defenses against viruses that you've had experience with in the past or been exposed to. Uh, so something new, your immune system is not, uh, at least at first, readily available to, to fight off with existing antibodies. Uh, that, that presents a problem. Okay, so let's let's come back to the to the testing, right? So you know we we're doing these border control measures, and China is doing stuff domestically. Uh, Hong Kong, other surrounding countries are are doing things. And and one thing that I'd heard from a lot of people is, well, you know, even if this isn't foolproof, you can buy time. You don't need to have foolproof containment to be making a difference. Um, but buy time for for what? Right. I mean, this is what's been so surprising to me about the, the the testing thing is that we knew that this problem was happening in in China. There'd been questions about the stock market. And it seems like we didn't it seems like nothing really happened during that interim. Yeah. Well, you you would wish that more would have happened uh, given the time that uh, China has bought with its extreme measures of uh, quarantining, uh, you know, uh, and 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 restricting the movements on 700 million people there. And the, as you say, the border measures which are put in place in many locations, including here in the U.S., do have some impact. Uh, they're not hermetically sealing off any country, as we clearly have learned. Uh, but uh, they have diminished uh, the number of new cases that 
arrive in this country or other countries, which is, you know, a commendable effort. Uh, and having that extra time means you should be doing something with it. And uh, there has been some stumbles uh, on the U.S. side in that uh, respect. As you point to, the testing uh, issue is a real mystery why we would have taken so long in order to scale up uh, testing in this country. Uh, I know that there were some technical issues there. There was probably some management issues uh, and some coordination issues between the FDA and the and the CDC and, and, and the broader government in uh, making sure that test worked. Uh, and uh, there was a restrictive screening protocol in place, which meant that the demand wasn't high, but if you didn't have the test, then you couldn't expand the, the protocol. So you had this sort of back and forth uh, tension between those two two issues. But expanding screening, we know now, would have been a very good idea because right. clearly we have hidden cases in the United States. And as we now start to expand screening, we're going to be finding those people. And if we had found them earlier, we would might have been able to intervene in the transmission chains, prevent further spread. That's the whole point. Speed is of the essence here. Yeah, and this this screening protocol, it seems like a real it seems like almost like a like a conceptual mistake. Right. Mm -hmm. Like like one thing you do in medicine sometimes is somebody is sick. Like they're seriously sick. They come to the doctor. And you gotta do some tests to see why they're sick mm -hmm. so that then you can give them the appropriate treatment because, you know, if it's a bacteria and antibiotics, you, you know, you, you got to know what's what's going on. And that's like totally part of medicine all the time. But what we really want to do with coronavirus is not hone in on what's causing the pneumonia in the sickest patients. We want to find people with mild symptoms and stop them from spreading a very dangerous illness around to more vulnerable populations. But it seems like they had just ruled out testing people with mild symptoms. That's right. And the World Health Organization, after it had visited China and saw what happened there, immediately said that all countries should take note of what's happening here and really do what you can to contain this virus as soon as you see it in your country. And an essential part of that is being able to identify who has it, uh, regardless of how severe the disease is, and trace all the contacts of that person to identify yet other cases. Clearly, some countries have been slow to realize this or implement it, and the United States is a prime example of that. So who's who's done it well? Singapore. Singapore has a history of uh, dealing with uh, you know infectious disease outbreaks. Uh, SARS uh, hit Singapore uh, hard, and they've built up a system where they have a very proactive public health response to outbreaks like this. Singapore has a lot of traffic from China. Mm -hmm. uh, they had an epidemic of this particular virus early on, and. Uh, put in incredible measures rapidly in place. And I don't know what the final count now stands at Singapore, but I think we're under 100 cases. Could have been a lot worse. So they actually did the work of um, trying to find every single case and test them. So they ramped up their testing uh, and surveillance rapidly and then identified people and put them into quarantine if they weren't showing symptoms or they might have uh, that later developed the disease and also implemented social distancing, uh, closures at the border when necessary, uh, all at a quick pace, uh, right. and it's really paid off. Right, so they basically went, I mean, obviously it's a small country, yeah. but they but they went everywhere, right? Yeah. They, they didn't say, 
okay, well, the, like this one guy was sick, and now we're gonna, y- you know, t- take take care of him. They they went very aggressively right. to say, okay, probably there's a bunch of sick people somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And like, we've got to go find them. That's right. Yes. Um, and it, you know, in part because it's a small country, but also Singapore is very, there's some dark sides <laughs> well, to their governance have... there, but it's very organized, yes. right? Like they have their shit together yes. in, in a lot of ways and they know where everybody is and they know how to find you and they have good public services. Yeah. And I think that uh, along with other things, you know, they, they impose strong restrictions or, or, or fines on people who don't follow quarantine orders there is a massive monetary penalty for someone who was found to not be following their recommended quarantine orders, something like that. But I mean, even in, you know, small sections of the United States. So like we know there's been a substantial outbreak in the Seattle area. Right. Mm -hmm. But they are not, I mean, you know, Singapore is small, but Seattle is smaller. um, And they are not like running around house to house testing everybody That's there. Right. Like, we know there's an outbreak there. There's some tracing of the cases, but, like, we still really have no idea what's going on in, in greater Seattle. No, no, it, it is a black box right now, and and it's it's kind of, uh, you know, frightening to think about. But uh, as I said, we they've, they're slow to catch up to where the virus is. And I think now testing will expand in the Seattle area as well as other locations. Uh, and the public health authorities are doing what they can to track those cases. But, you know, there's been analyses looking at the genomes of the virus in that region and comparing them to viruses that were there, were found in the West Coast six weeks ago. And the similarities are such that, you know, the, the, the logical conclusion is that we've had transmission going on there for six weeks. Uh, which hasn't been detected at all. Uh, and so now we're starting to see that tip of that iceberg show up with these deaths, uh, with uh, the numbers of cases being identified increasing rapidly. You had the people, uh, the first responders in Seattle who went into the nursing home where we've seen the deaths. There's a, you know, a dozen or more of them who have been uh, identified as being positive for this. So clearly there is transmission going on. And again, we're just behind the ball. There, it, It's hard to catch up at this point. Right. So let, let me take a break and, and then I want to ask what the sort of implications of that are. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. 
Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So one thing I heard some people say is, well, look, if this was circulating on the West Coast of the United States for six weeks and we didn't know, it must go to show, like, this just isn't so bad. Well, you know, it depends on your perspective. If if it's true, as we said, most of the cases are mild. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually uh, you will see people progress to the point of death. And that's part of the problem is there's a delay in terms of the transmission. Uh, someone gets infected, they takes it can take five to six days for symptoms to show up. And then it can take, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks until they develop those severe symptoms. Uh, so you're now you're talking about a month maybe after uh, the actual uh, infection moment that uh, you have the end result, either recovery or death. And so when we start seeing deaths, we can trace back and say, actually, there's a lot more going on here than than we had known. Uh, and um, people are not worried about it because of this not realizing that there there are some implications for 20% of the, the population uh, and we're only just now starting to see case numbers rise to the point where we start to see that in, in large numbers. And also if you just, you know, do in your head or calculate on your phone like a basic exponential growth exercise, right? Mm-hmm. If something doubles every week, um, it can take quite a few weeks and you still have almost no... That's right. You know, very very few people. It's not a big deal. And then next thing you know, you know, it's it's you're in a real kind of disaster zone. And and one issue here, I mean, I think they definitely saw in China is that if a hospital gets two cases of serious pneumonia, like that's fine. They're professionals. Mm-hmm. But there's also a like a breaking point on that, right? That the healthcare system does not have necessarily uh, like surge capacity. That's right. Right? Yeah. There's a normal expected amount of sick people in a winter, and you can go a little bit above that, and they say, well, it's a busy winter, uh, but if you double it, triple it, then, like, what are you going to do? Like, they, they don't have the respirators, they, they don't have the equipment. I mean, we're not there at all, but in Iran, it seems like they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Italy too. Uh, they're in in Lombardy or the that area which is highly affected by this virus. And, you know, they're having a real hard time finding places to put seriously ill patients. And the same thing might be seen in in a lot of other countries, including the United States. And as you said, we are normally operating at or near capacity in these emergency rooms and in ICUs, in places where you would need to house uh, seriously ill patients with COVID. And there's little wiggle room. Tony Fauci out there saying 20% of people might need to be hospitalized if they become infected with this. Mm-hmm. And if we have several hundred cases 
Maybe that's manageable. If we start talking about thousands of cases in a particular location, then that quickly becomes uh, difficult to manage. And we're seeing that evidence in Iran and, and, and uh, in, in Italy and other places. Right. So it's the, the, the size of the denominator makes a big difference because there's a certain – nobody wants to go to the hospital, right? But – you know, if you have to, you have to. If they can treat you well, they treat you well, and that's okay. But if it gets to the point where the hospitals can't treat people who need hospitalization, you're looking at a different, that's a right. different degree of, of problem. But yeah, on the extreme end, what you would have is uh, is a is a is a Wuhan, China situation where they uh, became overwhelmed such to the point that they had to build two entire new massive thousand bed hospitals in order to handle and isolate all of the patients that needed, uh, you know, intensive care. Uh, th that, I don't know if we would see that anywhere else, but there's an indication that you can click quickly, things can quickly get out of hand. Right. So what should we do? Like we're, we're behind the curve here, um, you've been saying a, a few times, and I feel like the attitude from the federal government is that they don't want to do anything to drastic mm -hmm. because it would be alarming and economically disruptive. But is that right? I mean, should we be ramping up and, and doing things that would inconvenience the daily lives of normal people but possibly slow the spread of illness? Yeah. So I think that you're getting different messages from the federal government. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, one message coming through saying everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about this. Uh, and it will pass. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, but if you listen and parse the words of the C CDC, uh, they're actually saying and have said that there could be significant disruptions and they uh, support the use of these disruptive measures uh, to, in order to address this, this, this epidemic. And sort of the smart approach to this would be know what the transmission levels are in any given location at any given time. And they're going to be different across different locations. So there's no need for a national lockdown. There's a need for perhaps region-specific or even you know, county-specific responses to uh, the knowledge that this disease is is circulating in a given area. So right now, authorities in Seattle, uh, in that area, might consider strongly implementing some kind of social distancing measures, you know, closing schools, telling people to work from home, and that kind of thing, in order to mitigate the impact of this, and also hopefully prevent some of the some of the uh, disease from transmitting, uh, and, and also give the public health authorities time to do this case investigation work uh, without getting overwhelmed, and also preventing, you know, as we said, the hospitals becoming overwhelmed too from patients. So, you sort of flatten out that epidemic curve with these measures, but it's not one size fits all. It's going to be targeted, layered, depending on the circumstances in a given location. Right. So the flattening of, of the curve, I, I, I did a piece, I, I stole somebody's graphic from somewhere. Um, the, the basic idea here is that, like, if you can just slow it down, even if the same number of people over some infinite time horizon gets sick, you can avoid those hospitalization surges, right? So that every I, I mean, I guess the basic point of that is that it's good to avoid fatalism. You don't want to say, well, it's out there. There's nothing we can do. So it doesn't matter. It actually makes quite a 
big difference, just the the pace that that events unfold. But but tell me what what would that look would look like? Like you said, uh, social distancing. So say you know King County decides, wait, like this this is bad. We've got to we've got to make sure our hospitals don't get overwhelmed. Um, we we need like we don't have the testing protocols up yet. Like we got to lock things down. What would that look like? You said um, close, closing schools. Yeah. You know, our model for this is is influenza uh, pandemics. And and um, during the last influenza pandemic in 2009, there was some closing of the schools uh, because children were known carriers and transmitters of, right. of, the, of, the, of the influenza virus. You know, uh, and here the, the science is still out on that. It's clear that, you know, children uh, can get infected, maybe at a lower rate than adults. And the other thing about children is that they're not seriously affected by the disease, right. which is good news. But closing schools might be a prudent measure when you're thinking about trying to flatten that curve and to uh, draw out that epidemic curve so that you don't have that overburdened system. Because schools are like, I mean, I've got a preschooler. It's mm-hmm. a, like a notorious cesspool of <laughs> illness. Sure, um, yeah. It's, it's really hard to get kids to follow like strict hand washing and Absolutely. don't don't touch that kind of coughing, protocols. Coughing right? and sneezing and, and not covering, you know, the, that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure, and it's like we, we try our best, but like kid, kids are gross, yeah. right? And so even, <laughs> so with flu, there's also a, with, with influenza, there's a concern that um, the health risks to young children are actually quite high. Right. But that's not the case here. But still, they could be spreading it around, right? It's a, exactly. it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a vector. Um, yeah, and 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 this is a measure that had been taken elsewhere. You know, Japan has closed schools, and South Korea has closed schools, and and now I just heard that Italy has closed all schools. Uh, so, it, you know, this is something that uh, other places are taking uh, as a serious measure, and and I think would be recommended when you're seeing um, you know community transmission as one way to reduce that. And then how about like big events, right? That seems like the other thing that that happens. Yes, yeah, so like, large groups. Like maybe let's uh, let's not go to. Well, I don't know. They they don't have a basketball team in Seattle anymore. Um, <laughs> but like concerts, you know. Yeah. I mean, I was yesterday. Um, I was at a conference with salespeople, and mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it was it was good. Like it was a good event. But like, what happens at a conference is you got a whole bunch of people in a room, and everybody's shaking everybody's hand and mm-hmm. saying "Good to see you." And it seems it seems not ideal. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there's a serious consideration to uh, restricting very large groups uh, from getting together. And we've seen countries do that, too. I, mm-hmm. You know, the rules are in, in France that uh, no, long, no, no groups larger than 5,000 people can get together. Uh, in Switzerland, I think it's uh, no groups larger than 1,000 people can get together. And, it can't, you know, we've seen meetings, you know, scientific meetings that I'm aware of, and probably lots of business meetings and other things being canceled because of this. Uh, the World Bank just canceled its spring meetings here in the in the in the Washington DC region even though we don't have you know the virus here at least as far as we know so the the uh, that is another prudent measure and and um you know in in Seattle or wherever we're seeing transmission uh, that would be another thing for authorities to consider seriously and so right so i mean cuz there's two things like one is people can voluntarily cancel events which it seems like we're seeing some of, you know, and I know everybody, our HR department sent out a thing and they were like, you know, let's chill on international travel uh, for a little bit. But also, like in, in, in France, right, the government has 
like shut things down. And and no place in the United States is is doing that currently, right? Not as far as I know. They're all voluntary measures, as you right. said. So it's not government mandated at this point. Uh, and the rules around that, it's not like the federal government, only in extremely unusual circumstances is the federal government going to be imposing restrictions on people gathering sure. uh, or enforcing federal quarantines. That's, that is highly unlikely, I would say. But Right. I mean, in the U.S. constitutional system, yeah. you wouldn't do that. The, mm-hmm. the CDC doesn't have that authority. Right. But also normally the federal government does play a informal coordinating role in, in all kinds of things, right? I mean the, the government could be recommending that states or, or cities curb public gatherings yes. and they're not. Yes, that, that's true. They could be. They've um, raised the issue as something which potentially could happen and it, recommendations could be coming in the future. But – we haven't seen any actual real hard recommendations come down from the federal government to say, you know, King County, we think you should be doing this or any place that has over, you know, a dozen cases might think about doing school closings and stopping large events. Uh, you know, I, I think that certainly could happen and would be the role for the CDC to play. But everything comes down to implementation at the state and local level. And it's the, those decision makers that are making that. And that's such a heterogeneous uh, sort of uh, approach across the different states and local areas that, that uh, it's hard to say what will happen. You know, one thing driving this, obviously, like, it would be super annoying to have Schools shut down in the mm-hmm. city. Yeah. Um, nobody wants to have, you know, like movie theaters closed or, or whatever. You know, it's it's a pain in the ass. Um, and so how much you think about that as a preventative measure has something to do with how you see the, the risks sort of unfolding. And this is where I – to me, at least, the, the message from the top seems very unclear because during the sort of border control era – it seemed like we were being told that this was a very serious problem, and that's why they were doing all these border controls. Because, mm-hmm. of course, it's always been possible. I mean, somebody could get off a plane from Thailand and be sick right. and, like, cough on you, and then you get sick, mm-hmm. right? I mean, but but it's fine. Right. Um, so, okay, we're doing these extraordinary restrictions, presumably because this is a big deal. And then once it failed, now it's, like, suddenly not a big deal. And it it leaves me very very puzzled as to what what's going on exactly. I don't know. It, you know, I, I think there are people in the government taking this seriously and do think it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So I would say that the uh, feeling that it's not a big deal is limited to a certain group, uh, and that. Uh, what what kind of group do you have in mind? <laughs> <laughs> well, the people that uh, want to frame this as something that is not going to seriously affect the economy or not seriously affect right. people's health here, uh, and you know, maybe there's some rationale behind not inducing panic. Um, but that's the tricky thing: is to find that right balance in public communication between informing people about the real risks, what you know and what you don't know, uh, and then inciting sort of an overreaction or panic if you 
say that something is a terrible situation, then there can be understandable reasons that people would react in, in a way that's uh, irrational. So I do think people are taking it seriously and do feel that it's a serious problem. But uh, sometimes that message gets mixed with others. So to bear down, I mean, what we're what we're speaking of is, you know, the public health agencies of the U.S. government. Um, I think, you know, even in the Trump era, um, his uh, his people at FDA are pretty well regarded. Uh, there's a lot of professionals at, at CDC, at, at NIH, uh, things like that. And and it seems like you hear or at least heard until kind of change in protocol, a lot of concern from those quarters. And then you have um, the economic policy sort of political appointees who seem to be really, really worried about the stock market yeah. and trying to not alarm people. And that there's a, a, a clash of mm -hmm. some kind in terms of what are you trying to say, right? Like if you if you want to get people to wash their hands more, you sort of got to spook them a little bit. Right. But if you're trying to get people uh, to, like, not sell their stocks, you have to not spook them. That's right. Like, that's what you have a president for at some level is right. to decide what's actually important here. Yes. And and that's the mixed message problem that you face. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think that's the right diagnosis that you've made there, that uh, you have different incentives across different decision-making groups. Uh, so you do need someone to have a clear message from the top that this is the most important thing. Right. And we haven't necessarily seen that. And so, I mean, do you think, uh, you know, what? what's your your view on this? Like, are normal people, um, you know, decision makers at state and local levels, are they underreacting still at this point? I mean, do do people need to be a little more, a little more afraid? I mean, obviously, nobody wants to panic, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's like, you take measures that are inconvenient, that are annoying, but they can save people's lives. Yeah. Like, do, do we need to be ramping up here? I think we probably do and that we uh, probably are. Uh, and I think there's uh, going to be a marked difference going forward if we start to see more transmission in other locations, that there will be more of a proactive stance. Mm -hmm. uh, we we were caught a little bit off guard with the situation in, in the Seattle region, I think. Uh, and the authorities there have done what they can, but I would, uh, you know, like to see other regions that see cases take a more proactive stance. I started, you know, I think we're starting to see that. We've had, um, you know, cases uh, in the New York uh, region now. We've had cases in Florida, and uh, the, while we're not to the point of doing social distancing in those locations, uh, there does seem to be, you know, a strong push to to address this with policy that uh, is you know remarkably different from what came in the past so i'm, I'm thinking of uh, you know governor cuomo saying that he expects people not to worry about the costs of being tested for the coronavirus or the care involved with it and ordering uh, sort of uh, state entities to cover the costs of those things, which is an important consideration, of course, uh, and is a marked difference from taking tackling other health issues. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, let's, let's take another break, and then, and then I want to widen out a little bit. So we see this, you know, spreading globally, all, all different kinds of of countries. And I feel like we haven't so far seen a lot of clear evidence of outbreaks in the developing world. Mm -hmm. And is that 
because they don't have the testing infrastructure or is it just good news? Like what what, what do we think is, is going on there? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a mystery. Part of it is the testing. And just like in the United States, there hasn't been a scale-up of testing to the extent that we would like to have seen as fast as we would have seen in order to get a good picture of what's happening. So, you know, I'm thinking of a country like Indonesia, which has a lot of traffic from China. And there was people early on making predictions that Indonesia would be a prime location mm-hmm. for an outbreak. Yet only recently did Indonesia even uh, report its first confirmed cases. And Indonesia has not taken uh, aggressive measures in terms of testing. Uh, So in that particular example, you have what I would say is a black box about what's going on there. Mm. Is there widespread transmission in Indonesia? Nobody knows because we're not looking or not shining a light on that. And that same scenario could be repeating itself across a lot of different uh, sort of developing countries. And, you know, the World Health Organization is working with countries, the Gates Foundation and Wellcome Trust, and, and now the World Bank are providing support to get testing uh, and surveillance capabilities out to the developing world. But, you know, it takes time. And I think there is more transmission going on in countries that we don't know about. We've seen that here, of course, in the mm-hmm. U.S., uh, and it's likely happening elsewhere as well. But yeah, you, you point to a very important consideration. Not only do we not know what's going on, but the impacts in those countries, because they are even more limited uh, than we are in terms of their healthcare capacity and their ability to do the contact tracing and all of the work that needs to be done on the public health side. The impacts there could be even uh, you know, more significant. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've been I've been thinking about is, you know, there's a lot of speculation and talk and math about, well, what's a, a case fatality rate yeah. for this illness? But of course, it's not like a pure biological fact, right? People get treatment when they're sick, and the right. quality and availability of the treatment is itself an important variable. So when you talk about South Korea, you talk about Japan, um, these are high-income countries with uh, pretty strong um, states, strong uh, social capital, right? Um, And presumably a a good amount of capacity to take care of people um, who are ill. Indonesia, India, Nigeria, um, Central America, you know, these are places that don't have a lot of sophisticated medical equipment. They don't have, uh, in a lot of cases, just like governments that are well-trusted by everybody, the ability to enforce orders, things like that. And it seems like you could be talking about something that is much more more serious in some parts of the world than it would be in South Korea. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. And you you need to be concerned about that. And I know people are worried about that. Uh, One prime example of that juxtaposition is within China itself, because the initial outbreak occurred in the Wuhan area in the Hubei province. And there, you saw a very high, relatively case fatality Mm -hmm. rate. Uh, And that had to do a lot with the availability of healthcare resources to treat the people with severe disease. That's where the sort of 2% number comes from. Yeah. In fact, it was higher even Mm -hmm. than 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 2%. Um, I don't know, remember the exact number, but it might have been in, in the 3.7, at least in an early stage in that 
epidemic there. Compare that with the other provinces where you had large numbers of cases yet uh, had a much lower case fatality rate. It's because one, they were forewarned that this was going to happen and they ramped up their ability to to uh, work on and 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 pay attention to these severe cases. And, uh, you know, they were able to control the disease to the extent and flatten that curve, meaning they could accommodate all those severe cases. So you can see a similar thing playing out in, in areas where you have high capacity to deal with the uh, severe outcomes and areas where you don't have that. Uh, and the consequences could be dire if if the healthcare infrastructure is not there to treat these people. But there's also the, the possibility, at least, that I... Uh... I know maybe it just circulates as internet rumors, uh, but that warmer weather will prevent the spread yeah. of illness and that that could be a, a positive factor for Africa, Indonesia, places like that. Um, low, low-income countries tend to be hotter. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly something to, to, to pay attention to. And right. uh, it it's potentially could uh, impact the ease of transmission of this virus. I, I think there's reasons to believe it will, and there's reasons to believe it won't. If it, uh, We know that respiratory viruses, you know, influenza, et cetera, uh, don't like hot and humid conditions and mm-hmm. are killed by sunlight. And so uh, there is that biological uh, angle mm-hmm. that they just do better uh, in cold, dry conditions. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, people don't have any previous immunity to this particular virus, as we've talked about already, that means that everyone is susceptible and there is uh, a a greater likelihood of transmission, even more so than seasonal influenza. Mm -hmm. I I think, you know, intuitively, right, it's like people are familiar with cold and flu season, Mm -hmm. and that happens when it's cold. Do people not get the flu in the tropics where there is no winter? Oh, no, people do get the flu in the tropics, sure. Um, But uh, there's no marked seasonality as you would see in the northern and the southern latitudes. Right. Uh, so you have flu circulating more or less on a year-round basis, and you don't have these massive peaks of flu during a flu season necessarily. But so it would be wrong to infer from like my lived experience of the seasonality of the flu in a temperate area that like the flu can't go where it's hot. That's that's not what's going on. That's right. Yeah, the flu viruses and, and, and other respiratory viruses don't necessarily do well in hot and humid. Or they do less well in, in hot and humid environments. They, they uh, transmit more easily in dry and cold environments. Uh, but that doesn't mean they don't transmit at all in those hot and humid environments. You know, even with this coronavirus, we've seen, of course, transmission in a place like Singapore, where you have 90-degree days and it's hot and humid. Uh, you know, Hong Kong is not exactly frigid. And uh, so it's not that it can't transmit, uh, which is a concern. It, there is reason to believe that the tra- transmission in the northern hemisphere could be affected, but to what extent, we don't know when a spring rolls around and summer rolls around. And we're not, ta- right. And and so one of the things with, with, with normal sort of seasonal flus is that lots of people have acquired immunity. So when the... Um, uh, virulence slows down, it kind of goes away for for a little while. But we're talking now if, if you know, if this is the beginning of March, right? So if a month from now, there are many, a much larger base of infected people and nobody hasn't acquired immunity or very few people do, the fact that the spread may slow a little bit is not really a, a game changer because the the base rate is going up so much. 
That's right. Yeah, there, there's so many susceptible people there who, who could become infected that um, even if transmission is diminished somewhat, it doesn't completely halt the transmission. Right. I mean, this is all speculation, of course. We don't know exactly how the virus will uh, react in different environmental conditions. We don't have that evidence sure. yet. But but it just it it doesn't it doesn't seem like the analogy to seasonal flu, even if it holds up, doesn't mean that in our case with a new virus that you would expect this to just go away in right. the springtime. You wouldn't you wouldn't translate the flu experience directly to our experience with this. Right. I think that would be that would not be the proper way to 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 look at this. Right. Even even if the biology is somehow similar of, yeah. of the virus it, yeah. itself, right? So then that's my question is like, how does this end policy-wise? Because we're seeing China, it seems like, has gotten sort of gotten ahead of things eventually. And they would like to restart their economy for sort of understandable reasons. But if they do that, like, isn't this just going to explode again? Oh, that's the worry. Uh, and if care is not taken in the way that uh, regular life starts up again, then that certainly is a possibility. Uh, but uh, from what we've heard from the WHO expert team, which has traveled to China and from Chinese sources, is that they're taking that very seriously. And, and that means slowly and with great care, taking steps towards resuming normal life. And so they have in place sort of exquisite uh, surveillance systems tracking people's moves and identifying cases and uh, have uh, taken every measure that one can think of in order to know where the disease is and uh, if it's uh, spreading. So if they are able to see that in a particular location that there's little evidence or no evidence of transmission, then maybe they can let up a little bit. But, but they keep those surveillance systems in place in order to see any increase and, and therefore put in a more specified or more targeted uh, efforts such as the contact tracing work and finding those cases early and intervening quickly. So this is built on essentially building out the, the infrastructure mm -hmm. for surveillance, for, for, for contact tracing, for social distancing, for quarantines, and continuing to, I mean, relaxing it, but continuing to have it and perhaps selectively reimpose. Yeah. So so you roll back sort of the very stringent mm -hmm. transportation and, you know, people being in lockdown in their houses, allow people to roam the streets more than once a week or whatever it is. Uh, and and then you you see how that goes. And then, and then you allow larger gatherings to get together or factories to start, you know, working again, people congregating in larger groups, see how that goes. And you don't see a flare up, then uh, you can continue that process of, of getting everything running. Um, but it's all predicated, as you say, on, on being able to maintain those surveillance and case finding systems and to being an intervene on, on, on a rapid basis. And so you're, you're not doing it for an entire population of a city anymore. You're doing it for a much more select group and a much more targeted way, therefore reducing the risk that it can explode out into a bigger epidemic. But that's like we. This is all like stuff we don't we don't have. Like we're not we're not doing large scale. I don't know any country you know other than maybe Singapore or mm -hmm. you know a few other countries where something like this could be put in place. Yeah, right. it's, it's sort of unique to China. And well, it's just a, Korea is the other 
sort of really big, the biggest outbreak, right, that, that has happened here. And they're going to have to at least, like, try to get to that that kind of a point. Um, but is there is there hope for us in the United States or is it semi-inevitable that we will – we will kind of end up where where China was. I don't know. There there are different scenarios which I could envision, uh, and a worst case scenario would be the China scenario. And, and I don't know if that's very likely because Wuhan, China, had to face this brand new threat. Was the first place that had to mm-hmm. face this brand new threat and was completely caught off guard. There is no country in the world which is not aware of this threat and not taking steps. So. You know, that would differentiate us from that scenario, that worst case scenario. But as it stands, you know, we have epidemiologists out there saying that we could be looking at this circulating in anywhere between 20 and, you know, 60% of the adult population by the time that it uh, makes its way uh, around the world. So, you know, if you start to do the mental math in your head as to what that implies in terms of hospitalizations and in terms of deaths. Uh, and, you know, one thing to, to highlight, which we haven't yet, is that we're not talking about deaths across all age groups. This mm-hmm. is something that's highly concentrated in terms of its severity and deaths in older age groups, right. particularly those over the age of 60. So I don't think, I don't want anybody to be worried uh, about the entire population that 2% you know, of the population is going to be dying. Sure. It's very important to consider those who have pre-existing conditions or an elderly as being particularly at risk for this. But anyway, that that's, would be the, 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 the worst case scenario. Well, and I think to, to the point you were just raising, something I, I think people should be clear on is that, you know, to the extent that that you, the hypothetical prime age podcast listener without serious background health problems is listening, um, any kind of measures we're talking about, you know, uh, washing your hands, complying with social distancing requests, it's not really about you, right? I mean, it's about, it's, it's something you do for the sake of other people who are more vulnerable, that if there's... Millions yeah. of us running around, coughing on each other, spreading this virus around. A lot of people, like mostly old people or people with otherwise vulnerable respiratory conditions, are going to die. Um, That's right. I, you know, like most people aren't necessarily at risk, but you have a responsibility as like a member of society to. Sure. Yeah. You you protect others who might be more vulnerable from getting this virus. And also you contribute to that mitigation aspect where you're, you don't have a whole lot of cases occurring at the same time. So even though uh, adults uh, younger than 60 have a very low chance of dying from this uh, virus, as far as we know, there can be some people who would need to be hospitalized or seen by a medical professional. The, to the extent we can reduce that number, right. uh, you've contributed to the the public good as 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 uh, in terms of the limited resources we have in the healthcare system to address this. Right, but like that, that's like the line between panicking and being responsible. Is that it's not it's not like you necessarily not you you the listener necessarily need to be in terror about yourself. And, and your family, but that like as a as a society, there is a concern that we will have overwhelmed hospitals, that we will have infections of a lot of elderly people, that we will have an inability to treat the 20 percent of people who might need more help. And so whatever you can do to like reduce 
spread like that that it's helping other people it's not just about like how sick are you that's right yeah and and these measures are you know are evidence based and and shown to be effective in other epidemics i mean this is hand washing sounds so you know pedestrian <laughs> uh but uh, when it comes down to it, we should all be washing our hands this much all the time, especially during flu season. But uh, it does affect the rate of transmission. And if everyone is doing it, uh, you know, the transmission goes down. And and that's the reason why it's recommended as the number one thing. Uh, and uh, yeah, as you say, these are rational and, you know, uh, not panic-inducing measures. These are, these are ways to contribute to... Uh, the the effort and be proactive both as an individual as a household as a community uh, to reducing the effect of this and everyone has a role to play. Okay, um, so but before I let you go, I, I usually I like to ask people uh, what 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 didn't we talk about here? What what should I've asked you about uh, that you you think people need to know? Well, you know, I, I think a lot of people have their hopes pinned on a vaccine uh, for this virus and. We're hearing different stories about how long it's going to take for a vaccine to be available. I think that's a that's a that that's a topic which uh, requires some additional uh, discussion. We're not going to see a vaccine, uh, you know, for at least a year and a half, probably, uh, maybe longer. I don't and, understand how people think they can know in advance when, how long it would take to well, make a new. Well, the the actual science behind making the vaccine is probably not that difficult compared to other things. So the the problem is that process of testing its effectiveness, its safety over time. And you have to go through the regulatory process, and that takes time. So you have phase one trials where you're testing to see if this thing is safe, mm -hmm. uh, that you can actually give it to people. Then you go through larger trials to see that it actually protects people from this, and then very large trials in order to see that it protects people and that there's no adverse outcomes uh, in a large population. After all that, and, th and those take time, money, effort, yeah. uh, that can be, you know, a, a year-long process. And so it, it, through in a heroic effort, we could get through this process in about a year, and if all the science falls into place. Uh, that's how you can kind of have a base scenario. Right. Uh, and then making room for things which don't go the way which we planned or we would want uh, mean that you could add a few months. Um, but one thing to know is that the even if you do have uh, an effective candidate, and I certainly do hope we will, and I expect we will, that um, that's just the first dose. And so you have to start thinking about how quickly production can ramp up in order to make enough doses, if this is still an issue circulating around in a year and a half, uh, that people want to protect themselves against, uh, we're going to have to decide, you know, who gets those doses that mm -hmm. are first rolling off the production line. And typically you would think about people who are on the front lines of, of you know, healthcare workers and people who are uh, susceptible to severe disease. Those are the people you'd want, a population you'd want to focus on first with uh, with a vaccine. Right. So, I mean, that's something we have experience with, right, from, from pandemic flus where it takes some time to get it ramped up, and and they they say you know people who are vulnerable and and healthcare workers usually yeah. sort of go go first. So we're we're not necessarily like reinventing the wheel with no. that kind of allocation question. No, no, we're not. Uh, but it is contentious, uh, you yes. know, as it were, as you can imagine. <laughs> and we've you know we've had these plans in place. Uh, we saw them get in, you know, be. Uh, 
uh, put into operation during the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. But of course, in that case, we received the vaccine after we the worst had passed, as it were, and also after we realized that it wasn't the most severe uh, pandemic that we could have had. Uh, that uh, so the demand for the vaccines fell uh, mm. away uh, just as they were coming online. I wanted to ask about that because I I think some people who have the impression that there's a kind of you know the epidemiologist who cried wolf, and they remember this like very hyped flu about ten years ago, mm. and then it turned out to not be that big of a deal. Yeah, again, early on in in an epidemic as we saw with this particular coronavirus epidemic, is that your early cases are the severe cases. And so you tend to overestimate, if you're just going on the numbers of cases and the numbers of deaths early in an epidemic, you're going to overestimate the severity of this uh, virus. Because basically you get a denominator just of people who were so sick that they went to the hospital. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. So the same thing happened with 2009 H1N1. At first, it appeared serious. We didn't know how... Uh, big that denominator was, just as we don't know having the denominators for the coronavirus. Uh, over time, we were able to find that out and therefore come to the realization that it wasn't, uh, you know, like the 1918 flu, which had a maybe 2 to 3% mortality rate overall, much more closely aligned with sort of the, the our regular seasonal flu of less than 1.1%. Uh, and so... Uh, it wasn't a matter of crying wolf. It's a matter of uncovering the truth mm -hmm. over time, and only studies uh, and experience can give us that. And uh, so, you know, the hope is that uh, over time we will find out with the coronavirus that we actually have many more mild cases than we do. Um, but in order to do that kind of uh, uh, research, we need a different approach, uh, and that is to start testing lots of people doing blood tests mm -hmm. to test to see if they have been exposed to the virus because you can test for antibodies specific for the virus and then that way you could get a much more a much clearer picture of the the, the true denominator so you, of people would want, you would want to do essentially like like random sampling yeah for that right instead of instead of testing people who you think are sick yes right exactly. you just want to just grab some different people that's and right see and see like because who knows like I had a cold three weeks ago mm -hmm, mm -hmm. maybe Maybe I was, I mean, I'm, sure. right? We wouldn't know until until we tested everybody. Um, and, uh, you know, you wouldn't have to test the entire population, but right. sort of a, 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 a well-representative sample. Right. It, uh, it's like a poll or, yeah, or anything. Yeah, and so you, you do the ser serology test for evidence of prior infection, and then you get this denominator. Uh, and, you know, we do that for flu which is, uh, you know, why we can have these estimates about the case vitality for flu. Uh, but we haven't yet done that to a great scale in the coronavirus. It's, you know, we had to, you have to make the test and it, you have to prove it. It works. There are places that are starting to do that. And the WHO is pushing this and this research agenda. And it really will shed a lot of light on on how you know, pervasive the the infection is and how severe it is once you have that picture. So we, so we should look for that research to come out of 
foreign countries pretty soon. Right, because that's where you had the epidemic earlier on. It's where you could look, take a constructive look back. We haven't yet had, at least as far as we know, that many cases in order right, to- Right, anything to look back yes, on. Yes, exactly. Okay, fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Josh Michaud from the Kaiser Family Foundation. Uh, this is really great, really informative. Um, thanks, uh, as always, uh, to, to all of our listeners back there. Um, thanks to uh, Jeffrey Geld, our producer, uh, and the Weeds will be back on Saturday. Saturday.